You can turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 92. Psalm chapter 92. I was on my way to the break room. I was working at Funtown USA. Funtown USA is an amusement park in Maine. Actually, it might be the only amusement park in Maine. Across the street from the Walmart. It was my first real job. They gave me a uniform. They gave me a name tag. I was on my way to the break room, and I heard a customer say, sir, sir, can you, can, you, can you help us out? Can you help us out? And I turned and, and, and looked, and I realized right away what the, the, the problem was. Uh, right there by the sea dragon, that ride that goes up and down, up and down, um, a man had lost his hat, and his hat went flying off his head, landed in the sea dragon decorative pool. And my coworker, who was on the janitorial staff, was trying to get the hat out of the pool uh, with his broom. But my coworker was a little bit shorter than I was. So the man was calling me over uh, to see if I could get the hat out of the pool. Uh, so I went over and did exactly what he asked, grabbed the, grabbed the broom, and I was able to slowly but surely bring the, bring the hat to the edge of the uh, water, take it up, uh, and give it to the smiling man. The man at that time reached into his back pocket, pulled out his billfold, fished around, and I saw his thumb and forefinger grab a green Abraham Lincoln in which he was pulling out of his billfold. And at that very time, the coworker, my coworker, slid back into the picture, slid right between the two of us, grabbed the $5 bill, shoved it in his pocket, continued his job of sweeping candy wrappers off the sidewalk. The man with his dripping hat just shrugged and walked off. I was left with, what? <laughs> How does this happen? What, what is it, huh, what? Short, tall, hat, bro- what? I was out $5. And it's not about the money. It's not about the money. I was in college, so $5 goes a long way. And back then, just to show you the date of the story, $5 gets you about a half, of, excuse me, half a tank of gas. But everybody who hears that story goes, wait a minute, something's not right about that. Something's not right. We are hardwired to know that that's not quite how it works. The one who does the work gets the credit. Panning out from that little story, a follower of Jesus Christ daily carries the irritation at a much higher level. We live in a universe in which the magnificence of our great father is rarely noticed by the masses. The mind-blowing love of Jesus Christ and that he would die on the cross for our sins is reduced to mere religious tradition or the cross, a mere relic dangling from necks. We turn on the news at night and we don't hear the news anchor say, headlines today, the creator sustained his creation yet one more day. We don't hear that. Meanwhile, Hebrews 1.3 says this, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. The news anchor goes on to talk about the world being controlled by powerful men. But there's no mention that their hearts are but simple streams in the palm of the hand of God, according to Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. And it's always been that way. If you've been in church the last couple of weeks, you've heard pastor talk about Nehemiah. You heard about Artaxerxes. And we know when Nehemiah came before Artaxerxes, there was no reason for Artaxerxes to bless Nehemiah and give him what he wanted, which was building material and permission to go rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. 
a matter of fact, if you know the story well, Artaxerxes just years prior said, no, there won't be any building project in Jerusalem. What changed? The stream. The stream in the heart of God, excuse me, the palm of God's hands changed as he decided to change the heart of Artaxerxes. Was it headlines in the Persian paper the next day? Nope. Did anyone shout praise to Jehovah the next day? No. It bothered, it should bother us as we see a world enjoying the great and beautiful creation that God has given and not praising the creator. All creation is shouting praise as we just read in Psalm 19 and just one through four one more time. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. I love the verse that says day to day pours out speech. You cannot shut creation up. Last week we sang there's joy in the house of the Lord and we will not be quiet. Who are we taking our cues from? Creation. The very creation of God is never quiet. Creation keeps saying, look, look, look. The beautiful blue sky. The crisp, cool mornings. The power in the wind. The complimentary fall colors. Are you seeing it? It's not by accident. It's the artwork of the artist and his handiwork is awesome. And all of this beauty reminds us that God shares his glory with no one. To do so would obviously diminish his glory. There's no one that can approach his throne. The atheist and the skeptic, they might say, oh, the egocentric God of the Bible. The God that calls people to worship himself. And the skeptic dares to say that with a mouth he didn't create in between heartbeats that he has no control over. But think about this. The truth is there's not a more stabilizing force in our universe than the glory of God. And that's not dramatic. That's not being dramatic. Think about this. Think about this. God daily sustaining this machine with its billions of moving parts we call universe. The very fact that he sustains that prevents this world from going into violent chaos. And secondly, if God has given us a consciousness to a morality, well, that itself prevents the masses from turning into a, or plunging into violent chaos. So it's no small thing to say this, that there's not a more stabilizing force in this universe than the very fact that we can know the loving creator is eternally entrenched in his glory. Any rival melts at his words, his decrees, his very laws are even more secure than the ground we stand on. Is that biblical? Absolutely. Heaven and earth, Jesus said, will pass away. My words will not pass away. The Bible you hold in your hands is more secure than the earth you stand on. Glory be to God. The world in which we live seems to ignore God's glory, and I'll be honest, it's fun to preach against a lack of adoration from non-believers until I think about my own heart and my own house. My own heart prefers pouting over praise. And my own house can go hours of silence to God's greatness. And my own house can enclose more complaining than thanking. Who got it right? Did anybody get it right? How about Elijah? 
First Kings chapter 19, verse 10. Listen to the words of Elijah. I don't have time to get into the whole story, but listen to Elijah. This is what he says. I have been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars. What did Elijah say? Lord, this isn't right. Something's wrong. Something's out of place. The people you love, the people you've called by your name, those people have rejected their worship of you. You're so deserving of glory and their mouths have shut up. How about David? Remember when David faced off with Goliath? What did he say? Before the face-off, he said this to the rest of the Israelites, including his older brothers. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who is this nine-foot-nine hunk of flesh that thinks, that dares to speak out against his creator, to not bow in humble thanks and glorify the one that made him? And I love Phineas. We don't talk about him as much. Numbers chapter 25. If you know the background of, of the story of Phineas, a priest of the Lord who worked with Moses. The children of Israel had fallen into debauchery. They'd fallen into sin uh, in regards to worshiping Baal. And just as God was telling Moses, Phineas, and the elders that there will not be any of this going on in Israel, and the people that committed such debauchery would be judged Right in the middle of that, a man and a woman exploited that debauchery right there in the, in the camp of Israel. What did Phineas do? Without hesitation, he grabbed the spear, went out, and let's just say he took care of business. What did God say? Phineas, this is God speaking, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Phineas was jealous for God's honor. If God is not honored, he's going to make it right. Obviously, in the New Covenant, we do not defend God's glory with slings and spears and an army. But these three men had a heart that we should want to cultivate that heart that wanted to protect God's glory, the heart that was jealous for God's glory. That is what we're striving for. And with that, we arrive at Psalm 92. Psalm 92, verse 1. And it says this, It is good to thank the Lord. It is fitting. It is right. Like when God looked at creation and said it is good. It was perfect. It's just the way it was designed to be. All the mechanisms of the cosmos are aligned perfectly we are, when we are thankful and praising the Lord, and we are jealous when his name is not adored and magnified. All glory belongs to him alone. Why such praise? Well, let's continue reading. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Verse 3, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, why all this praise? Well, look at verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. What are these works? Notice this mentioned three times. Is this the works of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as we sang just a few minutes ago? Perhaps. But notice it's quite exclamatory. Meaning what? It was written for emphasis. It couldn't be said just once. Think about a, a young boy seeing his dad who just came home from military leave. Those videos are all online, aren't they? Awesome. 
right? The young boy that just sees his daddy for the first time in six months because he's been on military leave, what's he saying? Daddy's home! Daddy's home! Daddy's home! It's over and over and over. Why? Because just once doesn't cut it. Once does not work. So it is when we look at the works of the Lord. We don't say it once. We say it over and over and over in praise. So let's use the three works mentioned for a simple outline. Simply put, God's past works, God's present works, and God's future works. Let's study that this morning. What are the past works? What are the past works of God? They're countless. What he did at Mount Carmel, what he did at Mount Sinai, even Mount Zion. But our minds jump to God's work at Mount Calvary. Could the psalmist in Psalm 92 be singing of Calvary before Jesus came? Nobody's already singing the themes. He's singing the theme of, we'll mention verse 2, God's steadfast love. And then we see his triumph over evil in verse 7. These are previews of God's coming demolition of evil on Mount Calvary. What happened at the beginning? In the garden, sin had its day. Satan fooled Eve, Adam lusted. And the desire when it was conceived gave birth to sin, and sin when it was fully grown brought forth death. We know that's James 1.15. So death passed before all men, excuse me, upon all men, because all have sinned, Romans 5.12. So there you have it. All have sinned, all in misery, all damned, all without help, and all without hope. But how great are your works, O Lord. Bethel, can you say that with me? Can you say that verse for me, with me? How great are your works, O Lord. Okay, that was the warm-up. One more time, ready? How great are your works, O Lord. Sin had had its day. Psalm 92, verse 7. Though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. At the top of verse 7, the wicked sprout like grass? Yes, just like grass. Evil is everywhere. It sprouts everywhere you don't want it to sprout. It flourishes. It spreads. Have you ever noticed that your bad attitude will spread to your spouse and then to your children? I have. Sin is toxic to our marriages, to relationships. Sin has caused endless heartache. King David said he was shaped in his mother's womb in iniquity. Sin is on our tongue. Sin is in our eyes. Sin is in our hearts. Sin is why we lash out. Sin is why we weep. Sin is the reason we fall. But sin, did you catch it in verse 7? It is doomed. How great are your works, O Lord. Verse 7, are doomed for destruction forever. Evil really didn't have a chance. How? Enter Jesus, the Son of Man. Perfect, no blemish, no lie, no lust. No area in his heart where he sought to manipulate someone for his own comfort or his own popularity. Pure. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus lovingly took your punishment when he took your place on the cross. Jesus lovingly took my punishment when he took my place on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, Isaiah 53. He got punishment and we got peace. How great are your works, O Lord. Bethel, help me. Ready? How great are your works, O Lord. All the debt was paid. Sin was hideous, but the blood of Jesus Christ was far more precious. 
We were ransomed from sin with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot, 1 Peter 1.18. The blood of Jesus completely canceled our damnation, rescuing us from hell. Colossians 2.14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Can you imagine our debt ledgers? Can you imagine? I picture a room with filing cabinet after filing cabinet after filing cabinet storing away our offenses, the record of our wrongs. Can you see that? Can you picture that? Can you imagine a friend coming in to look through this file? No, 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 don't, don't, don't look over there. No, no, no. Well, how about this one? This one says um, something about a lukewarm heart. No, please, don't, don't look at that. But this box, it's not too threatening, right? Times you saw people in need and didn't care. Don't look at that. I don't want you to see that. Every cabinet says one thing. Every file says one thing. Guilty. But Colossians 2.13. He forgave us of those trespasses and all those ledgers, all those records set aside, nailed to the cross, and we bear them no more. God the Father says, I don't even go to that room anymore. If the room is in the west, I'm in the east. If that room is in the east, then I'm in the west. No more payment was needed. The wages of sin had been satisfied. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, a perfect way was created for sinful man to come into relationship with a holy God. How great are your works, O Lord. Say with me. How great are your works, O Lord. And God, who's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance, can save the sinner today, can save you today. Jesus said you must be born again. Because if you do not know Jesus, those files that say you're guilty are speaking truth. You are guilty. But you can come to Jesus. You can pray to Jesus. Today, today, admitting your sinful state and asking him to forgive you. Friend, have you ever met business with God and come to him to talk about those ledgers? Have you come to him on his terms? Yes, you'll come grimy. Yes, you'll come messed up. We all have. And we break before him and come to him in repentance. Jesus said, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, John 6, 37. If coming to Jesus sounds confusing or complex, talk to a pastor. Pastor Tyler was up here just a few minutes ago giving that invitation. You could talk to Pastor Tyler, talk to a church member. Well, that's going to be awkward. Not really. Your mess. Every sinner in here that's been saved by Jesus Christ can testify, oh, I was a mess without Christ. So come, talk, have that conversation, and more than anything, mean business with God. Today, sinners can find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. How great are your works, O Lord. And here we come to Thanksgiving week. Do you realize there would be no Thanksgiving, no contentment in our life if all we faced with each day was this continuous drip of guilt and shame? Just picture that. Just imagine that. Can you imagine waking up, hey, hey, had my coffee, uh, got the kids their lunch, uh, cleaned up a little bit, had a friendly talk with the neighbors. <gasps> Have I done enough for the Lord today? Is, is, is God happy with me? Is, is God satisfied with me? We don't live that way. We do not live that way. Can you imagine living that way? Our thoughts towards God are not foreboding. The very beginning of Psalm 92, did you notice in verse 2? The psalmist, his thought waking up was on God's steadfast, unwavering, resolute, firm love. 
And going to bed, his thoughts are in God's faithfulness, even when he was not faithful. And from these Bible verses, our hearts are filled with praise and thanksgiving. Because of what Jesus did, we now have a starting point of contentment. What Jesus did at Calvary was enough. The Father's demands for holiness was satisfied in Jesus. Thus begins a lifelong theme of my enough is found in Jesus. Jesus is enough. My job, my house, the car, eh, Jesus is enough. On Thursday, at some point, second helping of turkey, third slice of pie, you were going to say, enough, enough, I'm done, I'm full. Let it illustrate what the Bible says in Scripture. Psalm 23, David said, my cup runs over. Enough! No wonder David said, when I follow my shepherd, I, I don't want anything. He's enough. For the Christian, contentment in this life begins at Calvary. Listen to this. It is being so at rest with our standing in Christ that no circumstance can disturb that rest. It means no accolades, no toys, no status will ever challenge that rest. Our standing in Christ becomes the first thing, it becomes the last thing in our life. Nothing compares, nothing competes with Jesus. So my rest in him, the very fact that I'm a son and daughter of the king is never disturbed by circumstances or anything else that was just listed. Oswald Chambers said this, the human heart must have satisfaction, but there's only one being who can satisfy the last abyss of the human heart, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is enough. Okay. You say, okay. I hear you. Sounds nice. Sounds comforting. Like a chapter in the chicken soul for my soup book, if they still even write those. Remember those books? Oh, enough. Just, just, just say it enough. Just say it enough and, 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 and you'll be happy. Come on. Don't you know what my boss is saying? My boss is saying more. More sales, more contracts. And more is not always a bad thing, right? What if I want more family time? What about Caleb in the Old Testament, right? 85 years old. And he looked at Joshua and says, I want more real estate. That mountain over there that's known for the giants, I want it. God said it's part of my heritage, I want it. I'm going after it. Joshua said, okay. All 85 years of you, man, go, go after it. Shouldn't Caleb have been content? What was Caleb doing asking for more? My family and I uh, were in uh, Bird in Hand, Pennsylvania, a couple weeks ago. Of course, we looked up the history of the, of the name Bird in Hand, uh, and the story goes that 1600s, 1700s, I can't remember, the surveyors were going through Pennsylvania, and they arrived at an inn uh, that was a little drabby. I right? um, think two out of five stars on uh, Expedia. And they, uh, they were talking about, do we go further? It's late, we're tired. Uh, and one said to the other, you know what? Bird in hand is better than two in the bush. Right, right, right. So, so letting go of the one bird to go after two, well, you might not get those two. They might fly away, and then what are you left with? Zero. It's just better to be content. But what if, what if 10 minutes up the road was a hotel with a free breakfast and a hot tub? Would there be a town in Pennsylvania called a bird for each hand? Right? Would you think about it? Would it have been wrong? Would, was, is there... Here's the thing about contentment. 
Contentment does not mean settle. Contentment does not mean settle. Contentment provides instead a secure starting spot for any pursuit in our life that is pure before the Lord. Because whatever is pursued is always secondary to our position as a son and daughter of God. So we can pursue. We can pursue purely, knowing that again, any pursuit, any result does not compete with who I am in Christ. Contentment, I think I say this, means the freedom to pursue with a pure heart. My new position in Christ means I'm not shackled by greed and pride. I'm dead to those things. I'm alive to purely pursue. We can pursue record sales without the love for money. It's possible. But we can instead have a love for giving, blessing others, specifically the fatherless and the widows. We can pursue being the best. Any athletes out there? Rumor has it that Glenn Fidel is going to run a 10K on Thursday. Can we pursue being the best? Can we do that? Yes, I believe we can. We can pursue being the best in the realm of athletics and other places in our life. Why? For the purpose, the ultimate purpose of demonstrating Christ-like humility. And then as opportunities arise, Christ-like leadership through serving. That is pure. My desire to be the best is not the pat in the back. It's not the accolades. It's not everybody telling me how, how good I am. No. My motivation, my drive, my pursuit to be the best is that I can turn around and humbly praise the God who gave me any ability and then use my opportunity of leadership to serve others. That's pure. This purity is found in the spiritual condition of our hearts. Last week, pastor shared that Christ did not turn the rocks into bread at his first temptation because his spiritual condition was more important than his physical. But does this mean that Jesus never ate bread? No, if you follow the story of Jesus, you see that he even used bread to make more bread. We know that he ate bread. Could you say that he was pursuing the physical? Well, when he did, it was pure. It never conflicted with the spiritual until it did. It did? John chapter 4. Do you remember the story? Jesus had just told the disciples, hey, head into town, get some lunch. And he began to talk with the woman at the well, right? The woman that had five husbands, claiming she only had one. And Jesus confronted her with her sin. And he is reaching out to her and pouring love into her, her life for the first time. And she's revealing, or he's revealing to her that he is the Messiah. What happened? The disciples showed back up, right? Rang the dinner bell. Jesus, time to eat. Jesus said, eat? Eat? I've got food you don't know about. And you can just see the disciples saying, what? what? Who, who gave him food? Who? Enough for us? And Jesus said, no. He said this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Jesus recognized when the physical could conflict with the spiritual, and he put his father's will first. You see that? That's the pattern in which we're to live by. We pursue with a pure heart God's kingdom first. Of course, Matthew 6, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So the question is this, are our pursuits pure? When they are, we begin to learn the ways of the kingdom. And remember that in Proverbs, the man that gives gains, and the man that hoards has less and has little. And how interesting it is, when the pursuits are not pure, our contentment begins to wane. But we are free to pursue more when we know that more will never compete 
with the rest we have as a son and daughter of the king. With that, look at verse 5 of Psalm 92. Speaking of more, how great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. Speaking of more, God's children can pursue the deep thoughts of God. Don't you wish you could get, on, get in on the deep thoughts of God? We can. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 9 to 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 9 to 14. I'm going to read it right off the wall right behind you. Ready? But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? We, we don't know the thoughts of the person next to us. Only the person knows those thoughts. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. We'll read verse 14 in a second. But what is being promised there? Because the Spirit of God resides inside the believer, we can know, we can comprehend, or at least we can walk into the arena of God's thoughts. Will we ever fully comprehend God's thoughts? No, no way, no way at all. Not on this side of eternity. Of course not. But we can enter into the arena of God's thoughts because the Spirit, of course, guides us in all truth. That's John 16, right? The Spirit of God guides us in all truth. Well, what is truth? That's John 17. His Word is truth. We are invited constantly through Scripture to draw near to God, and He'll draw nigh to us, James 4. We are invited to seek and define Matthew chapter 7. Can the natural man know these things? No. If we could put that slide back up, look at verse 14. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That goes so well with verse 6 of Psalm chapter 92. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. Are you thankful today, Christian? Are you thankful today that we can search out the deep secrets, the deep mysteries of God? We're going to talk about the wild ox here in verse 10. But i got to say this about the wild ox. He is strong, and he maintains his strength in part because he doesn't sit around and eat grass all day. I read this. This is really interesting. With his horns and his hoofs, he likes to paw at the ground, thrash around at the ground because he wants to get down to the bulbs and the roots. He likes that better than the grass. He wants the stuff under the surface. It's that stuff that satisfies him. You can see the obvious parallel. We are strengthened when we pursue God past the surface. And aren't we glad today, Christian, in this Thanksgiving week, aren't we so thankful today that there is a depth so much greater than anything that comes off a screen? Endless scrolling, endless posts, endless comments, endless opinions, endless news feeds. Oh, so superficial, so shallow. Give me something deeper. Give me something better. Bill Armstrong told me last week after church, if you don't know, Bill Armstrong has a, been a, a longtime uh, minister through Word of Life. And he shared with me this last week after church. He said, I just saw a 
a large group of teenagers come to know Jesus as their Savior. Awesome. And I had to wonder, were they disgusted by the shallowness of the media that they're growing up on? And they wanted something better than this cotton candy that's presented to them. You know, cotton candy, right? You go to the concession stand and you want to see your butt go the furthest. So what do you do? Get the biggest thing. And what are the, what's the biggest thing? That big old wad of cotton candy. You think it's going to fill you up, does it? No. Air, sugar, and by the end of it, you're left with a stomach that's ugh and wishing you bought the hamburger for a few extra bucks, right? That's the world, that's the media, that's the constant scrolling, that's the constant images. It's just there and it's empty. It's promising us, hey, this will make you happy. Hey, this will bring, build your relationships. This will bring satisfaction. All without serving people, all without loving people, well, all without embracing people and loving people. No, it's empty. The bread of life gives us so much better. The bread of life is so much better. Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. Psalm 40, verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, yet they are more than can be told. It's endless. The greatness of God, the glory of God, the salvation of God, that steadfast love talked about in verse 2. It's an endless conversation. We can't shut up about it. Our pursuit of more, I want to submit to you, is most satisfied most significantly in our pursuit of God himself. We praise God for his past works. We praise God for his present works. Look at Psalm 92, verse 10 to 13. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree, and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. Do you see the imagery? The horn of the wild ox, the horn obviously refers to strength. The ox, like we mentioned, is strong and victorious. Reading more about the wild ox, I did not know this, but if the ox is attacked by the lion, it's not uncommon for the ox and lion to battle all day long. You would think, oh, that's easy. That's easy prey. No, the ox will hold his own. He is so strong, so built. At the end of the day, it's not uncommon for the lion to walk off because it's the lion that's exhausted. And what else I learned is this, is that the hump on the back of the wild ox is fat. And it secretes its hide. So that when the lion seeks to claw and to bite, it's all the harder for the lion to dig the claws in. He slips away. What's the obvious parallel there? Right? The Holy Spirit's anointing represented by oil all through the scripture. The Holy Spirit's anointing on our life does what? Protects us from Satan who's compared to the lion in 1 John chapter 4. We know that greater is he that's in you, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world. That, of course, being Satan. This ox fella, he's strong. But not just that. God presents his present work as making us victorious like an ox, but as flourishing us like the palm tree. 
and growing as strong like the cedar tree. So what does that mean? What does that look like in my life? Does that mean I'm going to be victorious in all my arguments? Flourish like I walk in the room and everybody knows me and shouts my name? Strong like I can physically or verbally impose my will on others? Aren't you so glad it's not that? Praise God. Thank God today. Aren't you so thankful it's not that? That's the way of the world. And it's passing and it's harmful. Sure, win an argument and lose a friendship. Sure, everybody will know your name until somebody hipper and more relevant and new comes along. Oh no, that great strength and that loud voice. Watch it disappear over time. 1 Peter 1.24, the glory of man is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away. Aren't you thankful that God brings us above all of this? Our victory, our strength, our flourishing has nothing to do with this world. God put eternity in our hearts. We are not enamored by this fleeting world. We're aliens in a world of broken cisterns and empty wells. We are children of the king whose kingdom is forever. Instead, God gives strength to anchor a home against the shifting sands of culture, to stare down evil. Psalm 98, the Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord gives us victory through meekness. We gain respect of many and the opportunity to impact others for the Lord, not by imposing ourselves, but by sacrificing ourselves. The meek shall inherit the earth. We flourish through not the cheap glitter of being first, but seeing the value of putting ourselves last. In giving away our lives, we find it. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not on this hamster wheel of the world, valuing the things that the world values. No, I've been set apart, a peculiar people that does not find its strength in victory and its um, prosperity and its flourishing in this world but instead in Christ. Praise God, our lives are so much more than this rat race surrounding us. And how about God's future works? Look at verse 14 and 15. I'll say verse 13 one more time. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. Verse 14, they shall still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there's no unrighteousness in him. Look at verse 14. They shall still bear fruit in old age. Biblically, we're going to age well. There's something supernatural going on in verse 14. Because the flourishing plant keeps on flourishing, always green, always full of sap, always bearing fruit. Can a human being can be compared to that? All I know about aging is this. It results in a reduction of ability, not the furthering of ability. But in Christ, when our bodies falter, because we're in Christ, the physical has no effect on the spiritual growing that God is still doing. The victory, the strength, the flourishing, it just keeps going. There's no expiration date on our prayer lives, a heart of surrender, or an expiration date on faithful obedience. We never say this, oh, hey, when your back gets better, maybe you can resume your prayer life. No, the physical does not impact the spiritual in that way. Yes, it can in a certain way. We won't get into today. But no, the physical is not going to prevent your, your prayer life. It's not going to prevent a heart of surrender. It's not going to prevent your life of faith. 
The body's condition does not suppress the growing of spiritual fruit. I just shared the story with, my, uh, with our evangelistic class, our, uh, our Sunday school class called Evangelism. So I apologize to uh, the several that have heard the story already, but I just could not read this verse and not think of my grandfather. My grandfather was a preacher for many years, first in Brooklyn and then in Rochester, New Hampshire, True Memorial Baptist Church uh, in New Hampshire. And my grandfather suffered from Parkinson's disease. Um, and if you know anything about that disease, it'll, it'll start uh, and kind of progress over four, five, six years. And that's what happened to my grandfather. There was prostate cancer involved as well. Um, but my grandfather had quite a battle. When my grandfather passed away and we went to the basement of True Memorial Baptist Church to have uh, our fellowship time, um, they began the pastor microphone around the room uh, kind of thing. Hey, tell your story about Pastor Wally. Uh, that was his name. Tell your story about Pastor uh, Wally. One lady, I should have recognized her, I didn't, but one lady grabbed the microphone and said, Pastor Wally, he was my neighbor. And I been to my grandfather's house so many times and saw his neighbor, I, sh I should have recognized her, but I didn't. She started in on a story. She said, you know what? Was neighbors with Pastor Wally for several decades. And early on, being the pastor of the local Baptist church, yep, he invited me to church, wanted to ask me and talk to me about spiritual things. I said, no, nope, not going to have any of that. Nope, 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 nope. So in the years that followed, my grandfather continued to love on his neighbor. And the neighbor testified to that. He, she said, yes, he's a wonderful neighbor, uh, always helping us out. We'd go over there and help him out if he needed help. And she, meaning my grandmother, um, he was always friendly, always kind, always waved, always had something to say, always had a biscuit for my dog. But then we watched his body begin to give way. She said, the Parkinson's disease, it will freeze up your legs, and, and, and it would. It would freeze up my grandfather's legs, and so he would be in that driveway between the two homes trying to get his legs going, and he'd actually fall forward a little bit, and, and we'd all kind of hold our breath. Is his legs going to kick in? And they, they would, thankfully. But one day, my neighbor said, I saw him trying to get up the two steps into the porch. And it was a pitiful sight. Grabbing a hold of the railing, my grandmother kind of giving a shove, dragging the legs up the steps. She said, I couldn't take it anymore. The fact that he had not gotten bitter, the fact that he still had contentment in his life, and the fact that he still spread his joy to me, I had to talk to him about Jesus. Big mistake. I say that very, just to be funny. No, when he shared Christ, she accepted, she received, and she became a believer. And by the testimony of my neighbor, she said, yeah, Bible study started. And I grew in Christ in those final years of Pastor Wally's life with his physical body decreasing, decreasing, decreasing by the week. I saw him pour into me, and I spiritually have grown in Christ. My grandfather, yes, body a mess, but he was a green tree full of sap, bringing forth fruit. Yes, creation glorifies God, but creation also groans under the weight of the cross, according to Romans chapter 8. And we likewise, we glorify God and we groan. In a few minutes, we'll get up and we'll sing praises to God, and some of us will groan a little bit. Our back will hurt, our knee will hurt, but we praise God and we thank him. Our spiritual growth is not impacted by age ever. It may seem like things are winding down, but no, it's winding up. Outwardly, we're slowing down, but inwardly, we're speeding up. 
You may say, oh, I'm past my prime. No, you're just hitting your stride. Oh, that body of ours? God has a new one waiting for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 and 2. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 2. For in this tent we groan, in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwellings. These are the future works of God. These are God's future works, and we praise and thank him. But we haven't even scratched the surface. There's no time to mention the marriage supper of the Lamb, the streets of gold, reuniting with lost loved ones that have gone before us, the lion laying down with the Lamb, the dead in Christ one day will rise. We haven't even touched on any of this. The future of the works, the future works of the Lord are awesome, and they're very much praiseworthy today. Christian, when we look at your timeline of your life, at every point, if you're humble and you're thankful and you come before God appropriately, then look at the timeline of your life, your past, your present, your future. You can see the works of God and may it humble us and fall before him with praise and thanksgiving. We began this morning irritated at the world, irritated that the world in which we live does not lift up the name of Jesus as our Savior deserves. But we remind ourselves of some things. We remind ourselves that the masses ignoring God's glory does not subtract from God's glory one bit. God is not glorious because we glorify him. He is glorious because he's glorious. It was good and right when one leper returned to glorify and thank Jesus. The glory was no less applicable because nine chose not to. And is that the percentage today in this world? I'm not sure. 90% of the masses ignore the beauty of God's creation. 90% ignore the revelation of God on the hearts. 90% of the world ignore God's written word. I don't know. I can't say. I don't know. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. I will interject this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. What would have been the appropriate response to God? The appropriate response was to give thanks, was to honor their creator, but they didn't. So they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And if you know the end of Romans chapter 1, there's your answer to the world you see around you. Outright rebellion to God. Why? Because when they saw God, they didn't honor him, and they refused to be thankful to him. But back to that 90%. If 90% have cold hearts, Again, it does not subtract one iota from God's glory. And speaking of percentages, if you like math, remember Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, verse 11. Because every knee, every knee. Think about it, your knee, the person's knee next to you. The knees of people in other buildings around the block and across the state, across the ocean, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There is coming a day when all will be made right again. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Bow with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to praise corporately. In a moment, the music will start. In the moment, the lyrics will go up. Lord, I'm reminded when you were on this earth, 
you looked at a people and said, their lips speak forth praise, but their hearts are far from me. May it not be so in Bethel Baptist today. May every single one of our hearts fall in humility before our great Savior, our great God, and proclaim praise to your wondrous name. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.